The word of the Lord today is from the book of Micah, Micah 6, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Will Downey. I'm the Director of Student Ministries here at the Barn. It's a pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning. Because we don't get to see each other every week, I thought I would start with a quick family update. Starting with the ladies, my wife Jeanette has been thriving in a... I read that wrong. Surviving in a pandemic with two children. My daughter Joanna, who was born during the pandemic, is about nine months old now. She's crawling around and she's finding her voice. Our cat, Gwen, lately has been on the lookout for birds and bunnies that she could lure into our house. And as of this morning, she's zero for 132. And my son, William, is about to turn three. At this point, he knows most of the flagship Nintendo characters and is getting more conversant in all areas of nerd culture. However, I am trying to shield him now as best I can uh, from Star Wars so that he can experience it for the first time when he's a little bit older. What I have exposed him to now, however, is Thomas the Tank Engine. I was really into Thomas when I was a little boy. Uh, I had tons of the toy trains, uh, and I kept them. In early pandemic, William opened a box in the basement and he found all of them. And since then, it's been full steam ahead. His excitement about these colorful new toys was taken to the next level when he discovered that there is a TV show about Thomas. You can find all of the classic episodes of Thomas the Tank Engine on YouTube, and they're all about four minutes long, so it's perfect for his uh, attention span. There's something very, very special about going on a nostalgia trip like that with my son who's experiencing it all for the first time. And I'm pleased to say that Thomas the Tank Engine has held up pretty well over the last 30 years. Uh, at least with the classic series, there's a depth of storytelling and characterization that surprised me. Uh, some of Sir Topham Hatt's trains are mischievous. Some of them are wise. Some of them are conceited. Some of them are immature. But one thing that all the vehicles on the island of Sodor have in common is a drive to be useful. In their own way, they all want to be very useful engines. That phrase comes up at least once an episode, and even after the show was bought out and changed creative directions, it's still an idea that pops up almost every episode. And that idea, I want to be useful, resounded with me, both uh, when I was a five-year-old boy and even today. I want to be useful. I want to be useful in my family. 
I want to make their lives better. I want to help my children develop a sturdy foundation for their faith. I want to help them learn to love others well and grow in dependence as they learn what it means to be human. I want to be useful to my wife. I want to be supportive as the bulk of caregiving of the children oftentimes rests on her for now. I want to encourage her to have healthy outlets. I want to be useful to my parents. They're not getting any younger, and they're starting to need more help uh, with chores around the house throughout the year. I want to be useful in my work. I don't want to be running a child care for junior high and senior high students, but I want to guide them into vibrant walks with God, their Savior. I want them to understand the glorious gospel of Christ, the story of God's pursuit, and how it interacts and informs every area of their life. Beyond just the youth ministry, I want to be a team player that helps all of the ministries of the church run smoothly. I want to be helpful to my boss, Matt. When he's having a, a tough week, I want to take some things off his plate. When he has a child into his 40s, I want to preach for him. I want to be useful in my friendships. I want to listen carefully. I want to be encouraging when my friends are feeling down and to lovingly but firmly confront them when that's needed. I want to be useful. I don't want my life to take up space. I don't want my time to waste away. To the people that God has entrusted to me and to the place that God has put me, I want to be useful. If you, like me, have this deep-rooted desire to be useful, then I've got good news, because God has told us how we can be useful in his kingdom. But it might not be what you think. In Micah 6, 8, we will see God's requirements for how to be useful in his kingdom. And in Micah 6, 8, the prophet gives us something to know and something to do to be useful. He actually gives us three things to do, uh, but today you're only getting one of them. So stay tuned next week for the epic conclusion of Micah 6, 8. But for today, a thing to know and a thing to do. The thing for us to know is what is good. He has told you, O man, what is good. The thing that God wants us to know is what is good. What is good? What a silly thing to try to nail down, right? Don't we know that good is just a subjective concept? If I played a country song in here um, this morning, half of you would be groaning, And half of you would be grabbing your line and your pole and throwing it in a truck to go down to the nearest crawfish hole. Uh, And so I will refrain. When it comes to ice cream, Jeanette's very favorite flavor of ice cream is chocolate peanut butter crunch. As for me, I don't like the taste of chocolate. Give me plain vanilla any day. And if you at home are grimacing at that, then it shows that we can't even shake hands on what kind of ice cream is good. But God's word is like a claw dropping down to pull us out of our subjectivism. In the Bible, true goodness is not human-centered and subjective, but it is God-centered and objective. True goodness is God-centered and objective. God is good. Psalm 100, verse 5. God is the one who defines goodness. In Genesis 1 and 2, at every step of the creation process, there is a refrain where God declares that his creation is good. And so it is. God has woven his goodness into the fabric of creation. And as creatures made in God's image, we have the capacity to enjoy beauty. 
The colors of the sunrise, the sound of babbling brooks, the smell of fresh wildflowers are all beautiful, and they're indicators of a good creator. Goodness is sourced in the nature and in the unchanging character of God. The actions of God are good, not because they always make us happy, though oftentimes they do and they will, but because it's God who does them. They reveal the wisdom and the power of God. The gracious gifts of God are good, for they express his generosity for the welfare of their recipients. And even when prosperity is withheld, and we experience harm, and we experience evils and hardships, God's goodness can still shine through as we end up leaning closer to him, and we're drawn closer to him. Look at the cross. Now, on Christmas break, during my seminary years, I was bored, and so I took up a hobby. I took up whittling. And I learned, as all people who work with wood do learn eventually, that wood has a grain to it. And when you make a cut along going with the grain, Wood comes off very easy. The cut's easy to make. Chips come off smooth. It's very satisfying. However, when you cut into the grain or through the grain or against the grain, well, now it's a lot harder. And the cut isn't smooth. There's a chance of tear out. God has made creation and he has infused it with his goodness. And when we walk in his commands, we are cutting along the grain of reality as God has made it. And we find uh, the path to blessing. Of course, that's not the entire picture, right? Life is not all gumdrops and rainbows. We do live in a good creation, but we also live in a fallen creation. Genesis chapter 3. Have you ever wondered what sin is? Now, certainly when I say sin, there are certain things that come to mind. But it isn't really a physical thing. It doesn't have weight or volume. But we still know it when we see it. Sometimes. And we know that sin entering God's good creation had a physical effect on it, right? Thorns and thistles entered pain, and death. And while the Bible doesn't specify this, I think mosquitoes were probably a direct result of sin entering creation. I think it's best not to think of sin as a thing, but as an absence of something, an absence of God's goodness. In the garden, when Adam and Eve rejected God's definition of goodness and they did what was right in their own eyes, that was a pushing back of God's goodness And it had an effect, an effect that was catastrophic. And that tragedy continues to perpetuate itself throughout the human race today. Every time we consciously or unconsciously say, I know the Bible says, but we're creating pockets where there's an absence of God's goodness. But God loves us too much to let the parasite of sin to go unchecked. He's not left us without direction or bearing. In his word, he has revealed what is good so that we can live harmoniously in it. 
doing what we want, the way that we want it, will not cut it, even if done with the best of intentions. Um, recently, Jeanette was having a rough week, or maybe even a rough month. Um, and so I tried to step in, and I tried to do a lot of things that I thought would be helpful. Did extra dishes, um, did a lot of the laundry folding, uh, picked up some extra cooking, microwaved a lot of meals, but that wasn't what she wanted. What she wanted, what she actually needed, was me to get up early with the kids so that she could get some rest that she needed. She'd be up throughout the night uh, with her youngest feeding her. Once I knew what she needed and I started doing it, it led to happier times in our family. Doing what we think is good is only useful when it is indeed what has been revealed is good. So when we live in humble obedience to what God has told us is good, we bring health and we bring healing. Though God is clear with us, his people have often missed that point. The book of Micah is written in response to gross evils that had been growing unchecked amongst Israel's leaders, amongst their prophets, and amongst the wealthy and elite. There was rampant idolatry as Israel was worshiping after the manner of their neighbors rather than worshiping God alone. The wealthy seized the property and the inheritance of the poor, chapter 2, verse 2. Of the rulers, Micah says that they hate good and love evil, chapter 3, verse 2. And that they detest justice, and they make crooked all that was once straight, chapter 3, verse 9. Of the supposed prophets, God's messengers to the people, Micah condemns them for declaring peace to those who would give them bribes, and then declaring war on those who refuse to line their pockets. Chapter 3, verse 5. We hear that today, and we're offended, and we should be, but the prominent Israelites perpetuating this injustice didn't see it that way. In fact, people perpetuating injustice rarely do. These Israelites assumed that they were doing okay, because they were observing all of the religious practices that God had built into Um, Israel's worship. In the verses just prior to our passages, we hear their justification. They say, well, we bow before God on high. We bring him burnt offerings of the finest quality. What more do you want from us? Do you want us to bring thousands of rams, 10,000 river of oils? Do you want us to sacrifice our firstborn children uh, to you, just like our neighbors do to the God of Moloch? Micah's audience had heard five chapters of condemnation for their actions. But they can't get their head around why God isn't happy with them because they're devoting themselves so diligently to all of this religious activity. And they were even willing to up the ante with more sacrifices and even human sacrifices. How has Matt said it so often? This is an adventure in missing the point. When I was living in Dallas, I had the opportunity once to take a trapeze class with a friend. The instructors started us with merely swinging out and coming back. And then we um, started advancing to the next step in the middle of the swing, or at the height of the swing, rather. We would transition from holding onto the bar with our hands to flipping around and holding it with our feet. Then at the very end, we put it all together and flipped from the trapeze into the arms of the instructor on a second trapeze. Take a look.
That was so much fun. And it was hard work, but at least for me, it really wasn't all that scary. You see, um, even the most elite trapeze artists uh, do their stunts with a net. The net isn't part of any of the tricks, but it is there to catch them in case something goes wrong. And at least when you're taking it uh, class for the first time, things inevitably went wrong. I ended up in the net a lot during that class. The sacrifice system in the Old Testament wasn't a blank check for Israel to do whatever they wanted. It was a mercifully given safety net that allowed Israelites to address their sin, though imperfectly, when they fell short. God knew that they would. But the Israelites were using God's safety net built into Israel's worship as a trampoline, just jumping on it. Do we do this today? Well, I know I do. While Jesus' death did away with the need for sacrifices, we're not immune to the trap of substituting heartfelt Christian devotion for religious activity. I wonder, what is your metric for a walk that's pleasing to God? And that's a serious question. Take a moment to think. When I say a walk that's pleasing with God, what sort of things come to mind? On a day when I'm tired and I don't have a lot of time to think about it, I'd start listing out different spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, things like reading your Bible, fasting coming together for corporate worship. But spiritual disciplines are not godliness. They're a vehicle to godliness. And when they're practiced well, they help us move towards godliness. But practicing a dozen of different spiritual disciplines regularly is not how we're useful in God's kingdom. It's easy to attend a Bible study. It's hard to tell your child that you've messed up, that you lost your anger with them, and to ask for their forgiveness. It's easy to serve as an artisan in a tent during day camp for a week. It's much harder to be in a setting where everybody's sharing hot gossip and to take a stand against it and say, I don't think this is the sort of thing we'd be sharing. It's really not any of our business, and it might not even be true. We have such freedom in Christ. We have beautiful ways to resolve shame and guilt when we fall short. These are safety nets. They are not trampolines meant for us to be jumping on. In Romans, Paul tells us that we're saved by grace. And then playing the devil's advocate, he asks, well, if God's going to forgive everything anyways, we just do whatever we want? His response is in Romans 6.2. Of course not. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Confession is a regularly occurring part of our worship service on Sunday morning. How beautiful is it that we can come before God, that we can confess our sins, and we know that he'll forgive us and show us mercy. And that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There have been so many times during our worship service that the time of confession comes, and I've remembered something that I've done throughout the week that I regret. Um, I'll bring that to God. And then I'll hopefully, afterwards, apologize to the person if I haven't yet done so. And that's great. But it's not a blank check to do whatever I want throughout the week. It is a mercifully given safety net 
It's not a trampoline. So now we know how to be useful. We need to do good. Good as God has defined it, not necessarily what seems good in our own eyes. To be obedient to God's commands, to love others selflessly, rather than merely performing religious activity. But what are those commands? Over the course of this mini-series, you're going to hear sermons on all three of the commands to follow. But for today, I want to focus in on the command that Micah gives that, at least to me, seems the least useful. God has given us a thing to know and a thing to do. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. How did walking humbly with God fit in Micah's original audience? I think the first thing to note is that word there, uh, the Hebrew word for humbly, is not the typical word that we see translated as humbly elsewhere in the Bible. It's a difficult idea to fully encapsulate in the English, but it carries the idea of being uh, careful, being attentive, watching. So a humble walk before God means that we are careful and attentive to his directing throughout our days. Second, though it comes at the end of a list, walking humbly with God is actually the heart of not only Micah's command, but the entire Old Testament law. We see in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are devoted to having a healthy vertical relationship with God. Worship Him alone. Have no other objects of our worship, no idols. Don't use God's name flippantly or irreverently and devote a day of Sabbath rest, which is a move of faith. In these four commands, we see the foundation of having a healthy horizontal relationship with those around us. And Jesus says as much in Matthew 22 when he tells the lawyer that the greatest command in God's law is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And out of that flows the second command, to love our neighbor as ourself. The rampant injustice of Israel's leadership flowed out of their, at best, tepid relationship with God. They did not walk humbly and attentively with God, though I would imagine if you asked them, they would have said otherwise. And the problem is that they were taking these feel-good emotions that came from uh, religious activity, and they confused that with a genuine relationship with the living God. They got their high from participating in religious services and festivals, but then they were numb the rest of the week to the damage that they were wreaking in their neighbors' lives. They were not attentive to his guiding in their life. But is dedicating ourselves to walking humbly with God still a good use for our time today, especially in comparison? Look at do justice. Standing up for the weak and the downtrodden, pleading the cause of the widow and the orphan. As Christians, that's the sort of stuff that gets us fired up. It's clearly useful stuff in a fallen world. Love kindness. Who doesn't like seeing Christians share the love of Jesus? World Vision, Habitat for Humanity, and the Salvation Army are all organizations started by Christians to show the love of Christ to everyone without discrimination. Even in a post-Christian, secular society, Salvation Army is one of the highest-regarded charities out there. 
Our youth group is currently running a fundraiser with Covenant to Care for Children to provide care bags filled with necessity and comforts for children who are entering the foster system. That's clearly useful stuff, but walking humbly with God seems a little bit too passive to be worth our time, doesn't it? Well, if you're like me, taking time to get alone and quiet ourselves before God in the middle of a busy week sounds impractical, even anxiety-inducing. It does not seem useful. I mean, think of all the things that we would have to sacrifice in order to sit in silence. Pulling our thoughts out of what we do just to listen to God seems like a stumbling block to our productivity. But taking time to quiet ourselves, to humble ourselves before God, is not a waste of time. It's actually the most useful thing that followers of Jesus can do. And it is what Jesus did. Mark 1, 35. Jesus gets up early in the morning to pray, to be quiet before God. Mark 6, 31. Jesus takes his followers along with him for prayer and for rest. And on the eve of his crucifixion, we see Jesus retreating to a garden quiet himself before the Father. And when Jesus couldn't get away, we see him praying to God in the midst of his activity, in the midst of what he is doing. Usefulness in God's kingdom is about more than how much we can get done. God isn't bound by pragmatism, as we so often are. God wants a relationship with you. You're not a train engine whose usefulness is measured entirely by how much you can do and how quickly you can do it. Now, certainly there is work for followers of Jesus to do, but this horizontal work is best accomplished after we've had time to ensure that our vertical relationship is aligned. Else, like Micah's audience, we may be filling our lives with religious activity without realizing that we're doing more harm than good. Now, I talk to you, not as an expert in this, but as somebody who's addicted to getting things done. I struggle with taking time to get alone, to quiet myself before God when there are other things on my to-do list. But I found that when I step back from an issue and when I do quiet my thoughts before God, I return with incredible clarity. And oftentimes when I come back to it, I find myself tackling an issue other than the one that I was initially thinking about. Walking humbly before God is not a waste of time. It is the way that followers of Jesus are truly useful in God's kingdom. If you, like me, want to be useful in God's kingdom, then follow what God has clearly laid out. God has something for us to know. He defines goodness, and he has something for us to do. Walk humbly with our God. Now, it's important that whenever the word of God is preached, that there be application made, more than just an, an intake of knowledge, but an infusion of God's truth that leads to life change. Jesus said as much in John 13, 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But when our application is to walk humbly with God, well, you can see how it might be hard telling you what to do with that, right? It might even be antithetical to the purpose. So, this morning I am not going to leave you with something, uh, an activity to do, but rather a mindset and a prayer that the Spirit gave me during my college years. I cannot do what I need to do on my own.
When you're overwhelmed by the cares of life and you can't see a way to fit all things into the waking hours, I cannot do what I need to do on my own. This short and simple prayer allowed me to voice my emotion and reminded me to the pathway to peace. At the beginning of the year when I went deep into syllabus shock, during midterms when all of my tests and projects were due at the same time, when I was an RA and I walked in and found that a bunch of freshmen had a baby shark in their bathtub, when those close to me were in conflict and I found myself in the middle and didn't know how to help them bring resolution, I cannot do what I need to do on my own. On good days, I believed that, and then I prayed that. On rough days, I prayed that, and then I remembered that I believed it. I know it's from the Spirit, because as I've gotten older and I've moved on in life, I've realized that there is a, a depth to that statement, a profoundity that exceeds what I come up with even on my best day. It takes two seconds to pray, but it makes all the difference. Admitting to God your humanity and your limitations, it doesn't seem like much, but it is what God has declared is good. And it's how we're very useful in the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Dear God, we love you. We love what you've done for us. And we want to do things in return for you. We want to be useful for you, what you're doing in your kingdom, and for the people that you've put in our lives. And God, I pray that you, you free us from feeling like we always need to be doing things and be doing activity, Lord. Help us to um, see goodness as you have defined it, not as we deem it in our own eyes, and help us to learn to walk humbly, to look for your directing and guiding. Lord, we give you our lives, we give you our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.